This is Coder Radio, episode 394, for December 28th, 2020. Friend and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. You know, Cloud Guru now includes Cloud Playground, Azure, AWS, or Google Sandboxes on their credit card, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us, maintaining podcast order on his East Coast base, it is our host. Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. We sup back. Okay, I just got to breathe for a second. Just breathe. I, I prepared for this. I took a lot of counseling, and yet I'm still having the Jar Jar attack. I've actually been getting into Star Wars kind of big time again because, uh, like a lot of other people, I've been watching Mandalorian. Mandal- Mandal- what is it? Mandalorian? <laughs> and just finished it, and I thought it was really good. And it kind of makes me want to like care more about Star Wars than I do. Eh, eh, so I'm eh. almost getting there with you, but... I have not watched The Mandalorian or any of the new Star Wars movies. I just enjoy Jar Jar. Yeah, I know. That's what's weird about it. That's what's so weird about it. Basically, if Jar Jar's not in it, you don't watch it. That is an accurate statement, yes. <laughs> yeah, I... I don't even know what to say about that. I don't even know what to say. So why don't we just sort of like, just sort of sidestep that. And uh, I'm kind of kind of curious right off the top of the show, because you teased me, but you didn't say what. You said you were having smart home woes today. And uh, hearing your woes seems like a great way to start the show. <laughs> Isn't that what we've been doing for like many years, 12 years <laughs> or something? It's been a long time. So I rented this house and it comes with a smart, it's quote, a smart house. Really, it's a smart thermostat and steroids that can do a few other things. But it really wants me to give it access to the Wi-Fi. And I'm like, hmm, no-name smart home. I don't think I want to give you full access to the network. I think that's bad. I will just, like a Neanderthal, use the thermostat with my grubby little, you know, the digits on your hand. What do you call them? Fingers? And what, you like, you walk over to it? Yeah. That sounds exhausting. Because I don't want to give it Wi-Fi access and use their app and like talk to the app and whatever. I have been fighting the good fight for two weeks. Now, I'm also the father of a four-year-old. And I don't know if you know, but uh, Elsa's all the rage, right? You have young kids, you know Elsa. Oh, yeah. Turns out my thermostat is the, high, the HAL 9000 version of Elsa. <laughs> I set the temperature, it's like 73, we're having a good time, nice day, played a little hi-ho cheerio, Whatever. Two o'clock in the morning, Elsa 9000's like, okay, here we go. 61, deal with that. <laughs> and I wake up shaking. Like I'm, I literally like, oh my God, did I get like COVID again? Like what, what the hell, am I dying? Uh, and no, I go to the thermostat and it's frozen. Like it's, it's down to 61. I manually reset it. Think I'm good. Okay. Next night. Here we are again. We're singing Let It Go, Let It Go. Oh, no. After digging into some of the jankiest uh, uh, <laughs> PHP forums that I've seen in a long time. I'm, what was it? PHP uh, BB? Is that what I'm thinking of? Oh, yeah. I found out that the reason this is happening is the previous tenant of this house must have put a program in to the home system to lower the temperature at 2 o'clock in the morning to 61 degrees. They're one of those folks who likes to sleep in the real cold, even if you got to kick in the AC. Right. 
I don't mind it a little bit chillier at night. You know, I like to go at 67 myself, maybe 65 at the absolute lowest, but like 60, 59, 61. That's just, especially if you got kids, it's just way too low. Well, the other thing is, of course, it wakes the kid up. So it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. He's complaining he's cold. Like, all right. So there is no physical way on this actual device to delete anybody's preset programs. You got to get it on the Wi-Fi and you got to get the app. You got to get her on the Wi-Fi. <laughs> I hate that so much. And I, so I finally caved. I downloaded their stupid app. I yeah. gave it the Wi-Fi information. And a number of issues I've been having were explained to me. For instance, why did it seem like the house locked me out by itself as though there were a poltergeist? Because the previous tenant had set it to lock after 10 minutes if the doors were unlocked. That's really smart. That's a smart home right there. That's like a haunted house. So I am very unhappy with this. One, I don't think a random thermostat, which is a little more than a thermostat in this case, but should have unfettered access to a Wi-Fi network. Isn't it interesting how it's always the damn thermostat? They're like, let's put an entire computer in the thermostat. What could go wrong? And that'll be the hub. Like, what is the logic to this? You know what? Put a Raspberry Pi in the closet. Make it user serviceable and call it good. And if you're going to have a smart thermostat, that should be one of the nodes of your smart network, but it shouldn't be the hub. <laughs> it is. In this case, it's the hub. Wow. And it doesn't have like a screen. Right. I could see if there was like a tablet like mounted to a wall and it's like, dude, you can just run the whole thing here. That would be a perfectly legitimate way to like make an inset tablet mount that's, yeah, that, that just handles all of this uh, with an updated user interface. It could run Ubuntu Touch, right? Sure, sure. But no, we have to download an iOS app. That is, you know how some apps you say, hmm, I wonder if this has been updated in a while? Yeah. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Doesn't fit the screen ratio or whatever. It's not used to the higher resolution screen. So there's a couple blurry images. I'm like, this is great. This is what I want. Yep. So I ended up deleting all the presets, all the smart features, and then deleting the app again, removing the Wi Fi information. And I have literally forcibly downgraded this house to a dumb house. <laughs> I have an automation system that runs and manages all of the heating in Lady Jupes, which is exceptionally useful in an RV in the winter because it's hard to keep those things comfortable. Two nights ago, I start tossing and turning for about an hour. And then I finally get up and wake up and realize I've been tossing and turning. And I realize I'm just way too hot. Like, way too hot. What is going on? I pull out my phone and I look at the temperature sensor on my home assistant system. And it says, yeah, your bedroom's almost 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Like, And I, I like it, you know, 67-ish. And, and what had happened is the sensor had detected that the temperature sh uh, had gone up. And the system has an automation that's supposed to fire off to turn off the heaters, but that automation, for some reason, because software, never fired, and the heater just kept going and going and going until I woke up, and at 4 a.m. I'm sitting there rebooting my Home Assistant system so that way the automation start working again. And I mostly love Home Assistant. In fact, I, I'd, I'd, I'd say I'm in a long-term relationship with Home Assistant as a project, but you know those kinds of things happen especially on a big Python app. <laughs> it, is a, it is a huge Python app. And I don't know why, but sometimes those automations just don't, they stop firing and some condition isn't met. And it results in, I had the opposite. I had, I was got, I got way too damn hot. And, it's just, and I was like, damn it. I just need to fail safe for all of this stuff. I do have good news for you. Maybe I can solve another problem for you, though. What's the good news? A lot of people, at least a couple, wrote in. Uh, they wanted you to know about Variety, which uh, is a pan and zoom image slideshow background setter that uses Python 
and integrates in with your desktop to change your background on your desktop from a from you know like a slideshow or whatever you like does a bunch of stuff uh, without an extension, no extension required. It also has a standalone um, has a standalone app, but I seem to recall it has a GUI too, and I used it, so that's there as well. But I think the takeaway here for you, Mike, they really wanted you to know, no extension required. And there is a PPA and other packages to get it going. So you might give Variety a go. I tried it before and I liked it. I'm going to give that a go. Yeah, no extensions because extensions... Extensions bad. Bad. Or you know what's funny about Plasma Desktop. Oh, here we go. Is it has multiple different types of slideshow and download images from the internet options just built into the desktop environment. No extension or modification required. It's just built into the, the wallpaper settings. All right, so if you're playing the Coda Radio drinking game, that's Chris trying to get me on KDE every week, all the time. <laughs> no, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I'm just, it is just interesting, right? All right, moving on, moving on. Ross writes in, because remember we were asking, remember, Mike, we were asking for people's work from home setups? I remember. You remember. Uh, he says, hey, gang, I thought I'd contact you regarding the improvements I've made. I didn't have a work from home setup before the pandemic, as we were all nine to five, uh, Monday to Friday in the office. So I actually had to start from scratch. I won't go into great detail apart from the fact that I get to use my 1994 gray badge Model M every day now. Yes. One thing that I've invested in that I haven't heard discussed on the show is a decent rug for your feet. I initially went with a uh, faux sheepskin rug, but it didn't have enough coverage for the floor. So I purchased this sucker and it is sensational. And he links us to a sheepskin, a white sheepskin Ikea rug. In fact, he's a bit of an Ikea warrior. He says, besides being super comfy, it also works as decent floor protection for the carpet underneath my new Ikea seat. The chair itself was difficult to track down and restock dates kept changing. So I wrote a PowerShell script to query Ikea's API and to notify me when the chair finally was back in stock. Love the show. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you both. <laughs> I love that. The little, uh, is it in stock po- uh, PowerShell script? That's choice. That email was almost perfect, except it didn't mention Rust. Right. You know, I, I just want to say you mentioned Christmas. Uh, you know, Merry Christmas to you. True. Merry Yes. I think this year, technology had a measurable, like, negative impact on Christmas morning. Both Apple and Nintendo were having major service issues that made just simple, basic stuff not work properly. And, you know, it's frustrating because there's all this excitement for a new device, and you go to configure it, and their servers are down. Mm. And so you can't, like, log into your account or change payment info. It's just, oh, mm-hmm. not good enough this year, guys. Not good enough. Alan writes in with more work-from-home hacks. He says, in episode 392, you asked for workspace improvement ideas. I have a configurable metallic mesh shelf. Now, you guys have seen these before. They're the ones with sort of the almost uh, rod-looking poles, and then uh, you slip down the uh, the shelf over it, and they have a mesh. He says, I have it next to my desk for stuff that I use most of the time, like if I have to stash a mouse or a keyboard or something like right there, maybe a USB hub. I needed a place for all that random stuff. So I bought a few kit shelves like that one and stacked them next to each other and on top of each other so that things I need to reach out for more often are in the middle. And the rest are at the bottom and the top. The metallic mesh is nice in a sense because I can put a laptop on there while charging and I don't have to worry about it heating up. The mesh actually helps with airflow. Also, I thought this would be interesting to you. He says he uses two identical headsets. So get your brain noodle around this. He says, then I don't have to worry whether they have enough juice for the next meeting 
all the time. One of them is at the desk and the other one is charging. Both pairs being identical means that during use, I don't have to fumble around for batteries that might be placed in different places on the headset or in varying functionality, which I sometimes did when they were not identical. He says it's been a game changer. And he also said he is, after testing a lot of different setups, a one single big monitor kind of guy. It's just made things a lot easier. Yep, that's where I am now too. I have a 27-inch Dell. Somebody had asked for the model number and I naturally forgot to look it up. Oh, right. Yeah, we did get asked. I have I have Asus 1440p screens. I don't know what their model number is. I like them. There's something attractive about multi-monitor, but I think the single monitor setup, especially when running a, you know, a certain windowing environment that shall not be named, you seem to have less issues. Also, if you when you're on a laptop, what really sucks is when you have multiple screens and then you disconnect and then everything has to get like moved back to one screen. It's always such a hot mess. So there's there's that detractor from it too. But yeah, it really has been challenging in the past when I have different crazy multi-monitor setups. I love it so dang much. But I do think long-term I'll be doing the single large monitor thing. I may even like a little bit of a curve to my screen. Call me an animal, but I just... Yeah, you are an animal. That would make me crazy. Really? Yeah. I mean, what if it's like a big screen, like a 32-inch screen, and it just kind of curves in at the edges a little bit? I don't know. I just can't see it. I think also I'm kind of waiting for the right monitor. Something that maybe is a bit of a Thunderbolt dock in a way. Maybe it's even 144 hertz ideally and at least 27 inches. I'd love it to be a 5K resolution. I think that'd be a real sweet spot. We'll see. Yeah, the 5K on Linux is kind of tough though, right? Yeah, not impossible with some desktops, but yeah. What some desktop environments are going to now is you just kind of have a fractional scaler. You can just do 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 scale that thing way up. Some can go beyond two hundred percent, but I don't know exactly. Four K is four K is not bad now. I still think two K is the sweet spot. So we're talking about kind of higher end machines, but we did get an email into the show this week from Thomas about low end machines. He says I wanted to add my story to your discussion about people keeping old laptops that are running and keeping them going for work. I'm a freelance Linux sysadmin. And I've been a Dell faithful for many years. I have trusty steeds that include the D430, the Latitude 13, the E4300, the E6. Anyways, he goes on. He lists all of them, but then he gets to it at the end of that list. He says, and the XPS 139370. Mm. When my Latitude mysteriously fried itself suddenly this July, I was knee-deep in a rollout of some new infrastructure on a project, and I couldn't stop for a fallen comrade. So I grabbed the next best laptop I had lying around. I sometimes buy surplus hardware and resell on eBay, which happened to be an HP EliteBook 8460p from 2011. I scrounged together 16 gigs of RAM and an SSD. I installed KDE Neon, and I was up and going again within three hours. I invested $50 in a quad-core i7 CPU to replace the dual-core it had. I found out that you can just actually swap the CPU on that model, which was pretty sweet. But here's what's weird. Five months on, and I'm still using it. I've not gone back to my repaired XPS 13, mostly because the keyboard in the Elite Book is an absolute joy to type on in the 4K screen, to your point earlier, Mike. He says the 4K screen is still a faff when connecting to non-high DPI screens through a Thunderbolt 3 dock. Yep. Sometimes there's so many acronyms in there. He goes on to say downsides of the Elite Book are, of course, the screen and the weight are maybe not as great as they could be. The keyboard backlight's mediocre and the battery life is, well, pretty poor. But uh, I think I could actually continue working on this old thing. I'm only upgrading to a new laptop eventually because 16 gigs of RAM is a little tight. 
But I was just really blown away at how amazing this nine-year-old machine and how well it has held up. Thanks for the great show. Thanks, Thomas. Oh, man, having a laptop die when you're in the middle of a rollout? (laughs) That's worst-case stuff right there. best thing ever. Throwing together an old machine, I have absolutely been there. Been there, done that. You know, but he mentioned the XPS 13. I think that's a... Have you seen these XPS 13s? I haven't seen the newest ones in the wild, no, but they look pretty good. Guess what I just got into the studio? I have a box right here. I actually haven't opened it yet, so I'm going to open it right here on the show. It's a Dell box, and based on the size, I'm guessing in this box is an XPS 13. A review unit here for the show. Oh, it's a white one, too. Look at this. Oh, this is a nice box. And it comes with the uh, power adapter in the box, too. That's nice. Look at this thing. Wow. Wow. I've, I've never seen the white XPS before in person. They are pretty. This is really nice. It's it's cold still because it was outside, you know, and it's cold outside. So the metal or whatever it is is still cold to the touch. Ooh. Wow, it's a matte white. And it's... I'd actually... I think I would describe this... As beautiful, because the Dell logo and the XPS logo on the bottom are reflective, uh, like, polished metal. Aluminum, I guess. Ooh, it fired right up when I opened up the the keyboard. And the backlight, because I'm doing this in the evening, the backlight is significant. It kind of has a bloom look to it. It's, it's also really pretty. This has the i5 in it, it looks like. So Dell had mentioned they were going to send me a budget development machine to review on the show. Um, and I think this is it. So my first impressions are uh, pretty good. Is this a Linux model or? Yeah, it's their it's their uh, Linux developer laptop, and this one comes pre-installed with Ubuntu, which is booting up right now. Oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, I feel so British right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I accept it. Okay. This got to be a f- huh, actually. This is a 1080p screen. It's just really nice, but it's the 1080p screen. It looks like not the 4K, which may be actually. A good way to save money and still get something that really looks good. Well, and you're going to get a better battery life with a 1080p screen, too. That 4K is going to draw a lot more power. You know what I really like about this is the weighting. It sits right here on the edge of my table, and it sits there balanced. I really like that. You know, I'd say like only 15% of the laptop's on the table, but the way the weighting works with the screen and whatnot, it sits there. You know what? I'm gonna I'll use this for a week and then I'll report back on... All right. You heard it here first next week. Yeah. Yeah. If it's ready. XPS 13... And uh, I don't really know much more yet at this point, but I'll have all the details, configuration information, and all of that. Uh, shipped fully charged, too. This is, it's really stunning looking because the bottom is is like a brushed aluminum, like a chamfered edges even, like the old iPhone, like the old iPhone 5S or whatever. And then the top is this matte white. Sturdy feeling. So uh, I'll let you know, you know, because uh, Thomas, I'm sure you and others use these uh, Dell's as production machines. Uh, okay, so Mike, and I don't think it was you, wrote in with an age-old question. He says, Hi, guys. Long-time listener of the show, and I'm on team hashtag Robe Bros. Woo! Robe Bros! Also includes ladies. Oh, God damn it. It's so good, man. You know, and I've been hearing in other shows and stuff. It's leaked into other shows. People are excited. Amazing. I think we should try to have a product by 400. Ooh, we don't have a lot of time. You know, it's, isn't this 390? What is this? 394. Well, six weeks, okay. I don't know. I still haven't got a strong lead on somebody who can 
who can uh, stitch and sell. I, I, I don't know what to do about that. Right. I feel like quality custom rope vendors is like a hard thing to find. Yeah. But this is a this is an important product. And there's robe-ready consumers, Mike. You know, these people are robe-ready. They're getting out of the shower. They're freezing. They need a robe. And we have episode 400 feels like a milestone. Like, you know, something special. And what better than a robe? <laughs> right? Doesn't 400 say robe? Mike, doesn't it? You know what? I would wear it. Yeah. I mean, I've been wearing the minimum viable robe, and it's told it showed me that it increases my comfort level even when just walking around the studio. So, and sometimes I feel like I have a cape. I actually have pants on like a heathen. Yeah, well, pants is sometimes mandatory. I'm not gonna. I don't want to besmooch anybody for wearing pants, but <laughs> if you can, if you can wear a robe, you should. Right? Absolutely. Pants or no pants, you can sometimes wear a robe with pants on too. I do it too. I just don't tell people about it. All right. So, uh, listener Mike says. Uh, I'd love to hear your take on when to adopt a new code framework and when to migrate from an old framework to the new one. Uh, he's always he's always kind of gone old man when it comes to development. He doesn't really like going with the new and shiny, uh, even though he sees it flood his Twitter feeds every day. But he says, sometimes I will build something with an older framework, but then I'll put it into production. And then I kind of worry about it getting outdated too quickly. About five years ago, I went to build a new PHP application. Larvel was still the new kid on the block, so I built it on CodeIgniter since it was proven with history. That app ended up becoming the base for our SaaS platform. It now sells well over a million users. And in that five years, CodeIgniter has fallen by the wayside and Larval has emerged as the king. Although my CodeIgniter app still works fine, I find myself wanting to start the daunting task of porting it over to Larval or something more modern for the community support, but... Also, so we can hire developers, get security fixes, etc. So I'm curious, from seasoned developers like yourselves who have seen frameworks come and go, what is your rule of thumb on adopting new frameworks, and when do you upgrade from the old ones? Jeez. And, you know, so, as somebody who's just moved his shop to Python, I mean, you can kind of think of it in that context, too. It's like, when do you make a shift like that? When is it the right time? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough call. I mean, so the, the there's so many ways to look at this, right? There's the business way of it might in fact be easier to sell the new hotness, but is it necessarily going to be stable enough? Is it going to, you know, last, right? Having said that, using older frameworks, there's just a lot more support out there, especially if you have experience in the framework. Let's say you've been doing Rails for a long time. You can get things done in Rails very quickly because you have the expertise and there's a giant community of Rails developers who would love the Stack Overflow points for answering your question, right? But you can get caught in the rut of being a one-trick pony and kind of having the world uh, move on from you. I sort of tend to be conservative, as, as long-time listeners will know. Or if I do try something new, it'll be in what I'm trying to do, not how I'm trying to do it, in terms of like dependencies. Having said that, I really have been enjoying working with like a lighter framework like Flask and being able to kind of bootstrap up uh, lighter like compared to Rails or Django, right? And uh, being able to bootstrap up, you know, the specific solution that I need. I don't know if that's something I'd recommend for everybody. I mean, I think that's more of a preference thing and that like as time has gone on, the projects I get continue to become stranger. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just they need more custom stuff. All right, I'll give you a perfect example. A couple years ago, we were doing the show. Node.js was going to kill Rails, was going to kill Django, was going to kill everything. Then there was a lot of Node.js code written, right? Yeah. But that didn't happen. Right. And I would say 
Python is actually like, and Python is far from new and Flask and um, I could say maybe Masonite's kind of a newer framework, but you know, sometimes these things are just fads. And I'm not saying Node was a fad because there's lots of stuff written in Node. There's a hype train that kind of there's melts. a hype train, right? And and sometimes like you can get an idea that okay, something has seen a lot of adoption just based on the amount of hype around something, but that hype can make you feel like maybe you've made a mistake by by not jumping on board. Like when Bitcoin starts getting twenty five thousand dollars or twenty seven thousand dollars, all of a sudden all of this hype about Bitcoin builds back up again, right? Yeah, I think actually listener Mike hit the sweet spot, so he got five years. And, it, and, you know, sold to a million customers. That's pretty damn successful. Yeah. And that is, I think, success in every measurable way. I don't think he should feel bad about his decision at all. He made a good choice with the options at the time. Sometimes you don't get to build at the right time. And you just got to choose the platform that works best for you. And now you are probably at a point where it's time to start looking at migrating. Try something. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is just like a perfect negative example here is uh, when Swift came out for about a year, there was all this hype around it, and I even financially supported uh, the Vapor framework, and there's nothing wrong with Vapor, great team, great people. But there was, remember IBM had this whole thing where they were going to make like Swift, like it was going to kill Java and the enterprise, right? Yeah, they were going to make it the enterprise language. That did not happen. Right, there is <laughs> virtually no server-side Swift work being done anymore by anybody. You know, that's just a case of it was straight-up hype. Doesn't mean Swift's a bad language. Oh my God. What did I just say? It just means that sometimes you need a reason to change, right? You can't just change because it's Tuesday and like, unless you're doing Rust and then it's the right choice, right? Of course. Right. I think listener Mike should be patting himself on the back, not beating him up like he he seems to be doing. Yeah, you had that many users that worked. XNM in the chat is saying whatever Mike supports go the other way. He's not wrong, actually. I have a bad track record of, I just want to say, <laughs> Windows Metro. Lost a lot of money on that one. Yeah. Well, the bad ones stand out. You know, Yeah. there's a lot of good calls, too. Every now and then we find a clip of them and play them. But. iOS in 2008 was a great call, right? Like, just, yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, and you know, I do feel like uh, my my particular personality, and maybe yours, too, is... I almost never appreciate a win. I just kind of like, I immediately move to the next problem. I'm always, I'm always focused on making something better or fixing problems. And there's, it's just like, okay, well, that's been done. Now we got to get to the next thing. And I don't really ever stop and like celebrate a victory. And I think that's probably to my deficit, I would imagine. Yeah, I would say we both tend to focus on the negative for sure. And I think there's a bit of a, 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 a self-employed kind of mentality where you've always got to be like pushing forward and fixing stuff. So it's tricky. It is tricky to get that stuff just right. But we'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, your work from home improvements, coder.show slash contact. Go there, send in an email. Your feedback is a huge part of the show and we love getting it. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account and you go there to support the show. Linode is our cloud server provider. Their prices are great, and with that $100 credit, you can do a lot. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing, three years before AWS and other big providers tried to come along, and they're independently owned and founded on a love for Linux. They love open source technologies. That's where they saw things were going, and they started a company so many years ago, and they support the community around them. 
projects like Kubuntu, events like All Things Open and Linux Fest Northwest, and media like our podcast and others. It's pretty great. So that's why when you go to linode.com slash coder, you're not only getting a $100 60-day credit to try out Linode's awesome cloud servers or object storage, but you are also supporting the Coder Radio program and Jupiter Broadcasting, linode.com slash coder. We host all of our servers over there, and I was pretty impressed, of course, and I've shared those stories with you, but recently I've started getting notes from the audience. I, I love one that I got recently from listener Jeff. He set up this NextCloud server, and everybody started using it and depending on it. And he realized he needed to migrate it to a faster, more performant box, and he didn't really know what was the right path to go. He had a local quad-core box with 16 gigs of RAM, and he thought that would be enough, but it turned out to be insufficient. And through a process of creating the nodes, trying out the database migration and the software migration, following tutorials that Linode has on their website, he was able to work the process out and get his NextCloud instance migrated. And he says, uh, P.S., you were right, Chris, the cheapest single-cord Linode was still faster than my quad-core 16-gig local machine. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm talking about. It's, Linode's great for learning and it's great for production. If you're a small business or you're an enterprise that needs infrastructure, You'd be surprised what runs on Linode, a lot of the web. So go to linode.com slash coder, get that $100 60-day credit towards your new account, and make it possible for independent media to be free. Linode.com slash coder. So it is the 28th. I mean, this is like end of the year as it gets for us right here. Yeah. And we thought we'd maybe do something a little different, a uh, flip the script moment, because I think it's pretty easy to complain about how many subscription services there are. It's really easy to complain about the price, about how all these things want to nickel and dime you. But we thought we'd take a moment on the show to talk about the software as a service that we happily pay for. You know, looking back at the year, what's money well spent as far as a subscription goes in our mind? Let's talk about the positives of it a little bit because you could argue there's sometimes some really good use cases for subscription revenue, we have value add that we add through a subscription. It's not all bad. I think it's obviously a little out of control, especially when it comes to all of the damn apps on the iOS store, but that's another topic. Yeah. I thought maybe we'd kind of focus more from a business perspective. Um, we could throw some personal ones too. That's fine. I got a few of those. Sure. But I think one that we probably both have in common is Google Apps, yeah? Yeah, I run my whole business on Google Apps for yeah. ever. So. I don't don't use much beyond email. So I don't feel like I'm getting the complete value. I use Drive a little bit for some offsite storage backup stuff, for encrypted stuff. Mm. But I don't really use Docs much. I actually use Docs on my personal account more because I just have momentum there. It's really just for well-hosted email. No, I use the whole their, their whole like Office Suite Docs. Uh, the, on, the only one I can maybe complain about a little is their version of PowerPoint. But it's fine if you just accept that it's not PowerPoint. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I see on your list, too, Fireside. We both use Fireside, yeah. Yep, podcast hosting platform that uh, written by Dan Benjamin that we think is pretty great. I, I was a little surprised to see Dropbox on yours, I got to be honest with you. <sighs> it vexes me so. It vexes me because I managed to get, what happened is I managed to get the cost down pretty low. And so then it sort of backburned the project is what happened, basically. It's like, okay, I, that solves enough problems at that price point. But I just this last weekend was looking at uh, C-File again 
between C file and C think, I think I could probably get away with finally getting rid of Dropbox. But it's like that and Creative Cloud have a lot of historical momentum. Like I also pay for Creative Cloud, even though I run Linux. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're, yeah. Because you get assets and whatnot, right? That or you work with people temporarily that use it. You work with people who like just send you PSDs, and you and I have found that that is not just like you know have a Windows VM or like a yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah, and I have a MacBook in the studio that if I have to, it's got the Creative Cloud client, and because I use it so rarely, about once a month, maybe maybe a little bit more, depending on like if we have a project going on or something, it's it's like clunky to get started and whatnot. It's one of those things that you don't often need it, but when you need it, you need it now. And of course, there's a lot of historical stuff. And I've tried converting some of them to like open formats and stuff, and things have gotten messed up, and it just has not been ideal. What about some of your other subscriptions that have been worth it for you? Uh, so one of the big changes I made about two years ago that is actually finally in 2020 started bearing fruit was I went from using uh, Google Sheets for accounting to actually getting QuickBooks online, uh. which is kind of a big step because it's like, it's one of those pieces of web software, it's a SaaS, that is huge. And you have to learn it and you have to like, I literally was watching- It's not cheap either. It's not cheap either. And I was like watching YouTube. It's like getting Salesforce, right? Like it can do a lot of stuff for you, but you're going to work the way it tells you to work. Um, so that's a big one for me. They also bought- because they're evil. T-Sheets, which is a, a a timesheet tracking thing, obviously is a dev shop time, that's kind of important to us, right? So I like them. I, I will complain a little bit, and I know we're not supposed to, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's my nature. No, that's all right. All out. T-Sheets had native apps when they were independent, and they even had like a pretty good Electron app for Linux. Oh, uh, yeah. When Intuit, who owns QuickBooks, bought them. They really want you to use it on your phone. And I miss having the thing in my my top right bar that tells me how long I've been working on a task or a project. Yeah. Because if I see that I'm going over what the estimate was, or if I'm gonna if I just not feel like I'm making enough, that's a good early warning where I can reach out to the customer and say, listen, we might have had a little bit of a, you know, a underbid here or just a, you know, this is more complex or whatever. Having it on your phone. You know, if it's your timesheet program and you're working at a computer, I feel like that needs to be on the computer. And I know I sound like an old man, but... No, I completely, completely agree. In fact, I had a similar... So what we're using right now, although I don't know if this is going to change, the problem with QuickBooks is the cost is high. The lock-in feels high, but it has essentially every accountant in the States in their back pocket. Like, they all just want QuickBooks. Every accountant I've ever worked with is like, oh, well, do you have QuickBooks online? I, you can just delegate me a login and then I can get this sorted for you. I'm like, um, no, I don't have... But I do use FreshBooks for invoicing. They were a sponsor a lifetime ago, and they, I've been a user since. And uh, FreshBooks has kind of a modern take on invoicing. And they also have a time tracking app that you can do it through the web, eh, kind of. It's not great. So I ended up, for time tracking, when I was working at uh, for podcast consult, con- consulting, um, what I did is just a dedicated iPad that I would take my notes on in one pane, and then the other pane was the time tracking stuff. And it's just, it's just, it irks, it's irksome because it, you really just want it right on the main interface that you're doing the work at, and you could put your notes in there, and it'd just be a lot better. But I've been paying for FreshBooks forever. I even have like a grandfathered in account that's 
I think a better deal than you can get now. It, it's so funny. FreshBooks was the alternative I was going to go with, but my accountant is 77. He's like, what is this crap? Yeah. No, right. I, yeah. Some people definitely, it's gotten more, uh, it's gotten more well-known, but like QuickBooks is just institutional. Yeah. But they charge you. Yeah. For that institute. They, they, yeah. Anyway, I, we are not complaining. So let me do another positive one. Trello. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I am surprised. And so plug, plug, plug. Rabbi integrates with Trello and can automate your managing of your crazy ass Trello boards. Like I got rid of Basecamp. I got, I, Long-time listeners will know I've tried every project management tool known to man. Just a little bit of automation via the Rabbot, sorry for the ad, and Trello has actually been the, mo- the most elegant, simple-to-use solution. Huh. And because Trello is so dirt simple, all my customers use it. One of the big problems we had was that we would like get these fancy... Uh, there was an, there's an open source one whose name I can't remember, but it's like a super base camp. And customers would just get frustrated and like not use it and end up just emailing you stuff anyway. Then you always had to like track things down. Yeah, Trello does seem to have a high high user appeal, especially to a broader range of users. Absolutely. You'll, you'll pry Trello from my cold dead hands. And the irony of this is way back in the day, about a decade ago, I hired an employee who uh, was complaining that we should have been using Trello and I may have scolded him. <laughs> so, I, re- I think I recall that conversation leaking into the conversation on air and <laughs> hearing a little bit about that. Yeah. And you know, also the thing is, it's not just like the Kanban card style thing. It's like the whole Trello package, including some of the silly stuff that I would just consider frills. I have noticed, uh, like my wife will sit down and make these really nice looking boards. And to her, it that is sort of like that cultivating it is a way for her to kind of put energy into it in a way where she's thinking about it, but she's not directly working on it. That makes a ton of sense. So give me one of yours. You did a fresh book. So what's next? Yeah. Well, so, you know, you got me on the Dropbox. I got to admit it. Um, Something else that uh, we pay for, although it's pretty reduced now, is um, Alphonic, which is an online audio processing service. It's really kind of nice. It's quite handy. It's kind of magic, black magic kind of audio processing. Not probably as great as something like a guy like Drew could do on his own, but like somebody who just wants some basic audio cleanup, Alphonic is great for that. So it's one of our like Hail Mary approaches to like a real bad interview or something like that. And you pay for hours of processing on their servers. So um, I think I I think I buy like uh, 10 hours a month or something like that. It's just on the cusp of not needing it, to be honest with you. But every now and then it comes in and it sort of saves the day and it kind of justifies itself for like another three months. <laughs> so it can automatically take in the audio file and just... Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I recently, an example is, we could actually hear it in production. Uh, like three weeks ago or a month, I had Michael Arbalon from Pharonix on Linux Action News. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Michael, God bless him, he, uh, he has a data center in his basement where he does a lot of his benchmarking. And as you probably are aware, data centers, they're loud. There's a lot of fan noise in a data center. And uh, he, he, took, he took the call in the data center. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was an intense white whoosh noise in the background. But I ran it through a phonic for processing. And, uh, you know, sure enough, if it didn't just clean it right out, you wouldn't even really know he's in a data center at all. Huh. And, uh, you know, I, did, I did, didn't really have to do anything. <laughs> I just ran it through the processing. All right. Yeah, it's nice for, you know, podcasters that are in a rush that, uh, you know, can't call on Drew to save the day. It's it's great for that kind of stuff. I'm going to give you one that you don't like. Okay. Slack. Yeah, I just... 
I just can't bring myself to pay for Slack. You know what? I was thinking of leaving Slack. I think I was looking at Mattermost, if I'm not mistaken, the open source alternative. Sure. But just the hassle and frankly, the years of like institutional information that's in our Slack um, that, you know, all my employees know how to use it. Much to my chagrin, we now have a customer who we're in a shared workspace with. But if you want to get me started on shared workspaces, that's a is it no good? Because that is the that is the thing that keeps coming up that makes me getting closer and closer to paying for it. It does what you want it to do, but it it makes your Slack interface when you have multiple teams and then shared workspaces very complex. Uh, and there's a it, it's almost like notification. Uh, it's like a notification bullet hell. Oh, but oh. I pay for it because it's probably I would say it's even more important than G Suite or it's even with it for the way I run my business now. Wow. Yeah. Though I do think their pricing is a little rough on on small businesses. I, I would agree that real-time chat is is probably more important than email for my business, at least for internal communication. Okay. Uh, and we do that on Slack right now, but um, you know, my primary driver is just simply I don't I don't want to ask everyone else that works with us to install yet another app. Because they all already have Slack. Well, that's the other thing. People, even like non-techie people, all know how to use Slack. Even if they're from, even if their organization uses Teams, right? It's the same. I mean, it's close. I just now that, especially now that they're going to be owned by Salesforce, and the fact that Mattermost is so easy to set up. I mean, I could toss it on a Linode in literally, pr- I mean, probably under ten minutes. You could have an entire thing ready to go in production with a URL and everything. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm just, you know, my point is like that. But for me, that is a real possibility. That is something I would be willing to do. Uh, And then there's Matrix, which is still rough, but could ultimately be like like the ultimate Slack one day. Just, it's so hard to pay for it when those options are just right there, especially when it's $12 a user. That makes it hundreds of dollars a month, a month. To pay for. Yeah, I know, because I'm currently paying that bill. Right. Like, oh, it's a lot of money, but I will just back to positivity. It is so vital to my business that actually a couple hundred bucks a month versus, you know, not having it, it, it ended up being a no brainer. I'm almost there myself. I am almost there. It's just, it's hard. It's really, it's really hard. And of course, it's cross-team slacking that is pushing this now. I wish that didn't exist. The cross-team stuff is where things start getting wacky. Huh. Maybe it's just a point. I was just going to realize, I should probably mention that we pay for Squadcast, which is the tool that you and I are using here. But that keeps maybe crashing. Should, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it's crashed. Like, it's going to make Drew work extra hard this week because he's got to stitch it so far, like three files together. So, yeah, I don't know. But we do use, uh, we do use Squadcast for a lot of our uh, remote, uh, it's a WebRTC audio app that offers local recording. I'll just say I have way too many app subscriptions for for things like Overcast, AirMail. Yeah, same. Yeah, um, I actually opted to go for the Apple One thing too. Really? Yeah. Well, that's I'll, that'll be, that'll be my ending shame, and I'm happily paying for it because I'm actually paying less than I was before because I have a family plan with like five family members or whatever it is. And um, they all have upgraded storage because all these devices need more than the pittance that Apple gives you. Mm. And Apple Music. Yep. And the wife and daughter love the Apple Fitness. So makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So I, I did, I did it. And, I, and I actually, I ended, I ended up saving like ten bucks a month or something like that. So, <laughs> what about you? What's your, uh, what's your guilty? I'm gonna, I, I don't know if it's guilty, but the obvious one is uh, I have the JetBrains Ultimate. Uh, it's a subscription to all of their products. Oh yeah, and I have it for each one of my employees as well. So that's a that's a that's a nice chunk every month. Why you're all in VS Code? <laughs> well, that's the problem. As we're doing more Python, we're like, oh, do we need the? I mean, they've got some great products. Like, it, so I could understand wanting to keep it, but at the same time, if VS Code and plugins are meeting 95 percent of your need, what are you going to do there? I, I will say the Ruby stuff in VS Code is not nearly as good as the Python stuff. So Ruby mine is still, especially with some of these larger legacy projects, or even just non-legacy larger projects that are more complex. The some of the intelligent refactoring and stuff like that is really nice to have. I don't know the VS Code uh, ecosystem is pretty dynamic right now, right? I could I could see like the RuboCop integration, which for those who don't know, RuboCop is a static analyzer for Ruby. It's right joke on RoboCop. It's really good in VS Code, and it's actually less buggy than it is in RubyMine. So it's getting there. And the Python stuff, VS Code just runs circles around PyCharm. I mean, it's just bad <laughs> if you're using PyLance. PyLance. I was trying to remember the name of it. That's what it was. PyLance. The, the only thing that PyCharm keeps is the IntelliJ refactorings. You know, that's one of those things that VS Code is going to get very... You can feel it, right? Like, it's coming. It's just... yes. Not done. So, you know, uh, I will mention that our Coderly for Q4 is now out. It is in the limited ad feed and it's also available as a standalone download in your Coder QA membership dashboard. And in that Coder QA, Coderly, Mike talks more about some of the business reasons for the Python switch. I think that is actually a very fascinating conversation. So if you are one of our CoderQA members or you want to become one, go to coderqa.co and you support the show. You get that limited ad feed and those Coderly reports and Q4s fresh just went out today as we record this. Courses, by the time this is available for download, it'll been out for a couple of days. So you may have already heard it. And you can find it at coderqa.co and then in the download section or just in the limited ad feeds. If you've subscribed to that, which is one of your member perks, it'll just show up in there. Hey, before we blast out of here, I was just reading through the Stack Overflow Developer Survey for 2020. We read these every year. And they say in here, a consistent rise over the last five years, Python fell from second last year to third this year on the list of most loved technologies. So you're getting in just at the right time. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> right. X&M had a good point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I actually think you're getting it at a great time. I tease. But, uh, you know, what beat it out was TypeScript. Rust held the top spot for the most loved technology for the fifth year in a row. And what's not to love? What's not to love? When you look at platforms, surprise, surprise, Linux is the number one platform by 55%. I'm on a Thaleo. I mean, obviously there's developers, but... My God. I mean, no wonder why Dell's making laptops like this. Windows was the second platform at 53%. But then get get this. You know what beat out AWS, Android, Mac OS? Just Docker with 35%, the third largest used platform, Docker. I didn't kind of get that. Because they're probably running it on AWS. <laughs> right. It's like you're not just like, yeah. and, and like you're comparing Windows and Linux to Docker. 
Yeah, well, I think what they were talking about was probably the platforms that they're targeting for applications. I'd have to see the question on this one. I wish they showed that. But even if you're targeting Docker, you're still probably targeting some variant of Debian, or if you're smart, SUSE. Well, what I thought was strange is WordPress? I guess a WordPress plugin developer, perhaps? Well, I think there's a lot. There's Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, right? Yeah. Uh, Heroku at 11%. Slack apps and integrations, 7%. Raspberry Pi, 14.9%. Above WordPress and Azure. Or Azure. Yeah. I mean, I think they're actually doing pretty well, but it doesn't seem to really show in this thing. I think they're doing well. I think the problem is they tend to be slightly more expensive when you run out of credits. Oh, uh, yeah. And like, you know, to plug a sponsor, what you can do with 100 bucks on Linode versus what you can do with 100 bucks on Azure. A couple other interesting notes. More than 75% of developers work overtime at least occasionally. <laughs> I know. One to two days per quarter, 25% work overtime one to two days per week or more. Yeah. Oh, boy. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting to read through these. But uh, we will link to the overview, and then you can dig into the different technology stacks and platforms that they ask everybody about. Mine are always the favorite, like most popular this and whatnot, but they, they cover all kinds of stuff, including um, you know web frameworks, which uh, I'll leave for that as an exercise in the show notes. If you want to go check that out. Also, why don't you go check out our sponsor, Cloud Guru, on social media. You can find them at just slash a cloud guru on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all of the sites. It's really simple. It's just slash a cloud guru. You can find Mike on Twitter. He's at Dumanuku. His company is at The Mad Botter Inc. Is there anything else you want to plug, Mr. Dominic? Uh, no, just follow the show and apparently prepare for some robes. Yeah, yeah. the show is at Coder Radio Show. Our website is uh, coder.show, and you can get links for everything we talked about today at coder.show slash 394. Over there, you'll also see the subscribe page if you want RSS feeds. And why don't you join us for the Coder Happy Hour live Monday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Today I was playing Cyberpunk 2077 via Stadia. Uh, and you'll have to show up live to see how that goes. It's pretty interesting. And then usually a little bit into it, Mike joins me and we start up the show. That's right. It's the Coder Happy Hour Mondays, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's it. That's our business for this episode. So come out, come on out, hang out with us on Mondays. Otherwise, get the show at Coder.show. That's everything. That's all I got for you. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Coder Radio Program. And my friends, we will see you right back here next week.